Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And we are not doing a regular book this week. So in case you're listening to this after our YA forecast, it's a little bit of the same, but also different. And if you have not listened to that, this is a standalone episode And we are following up on some of the homework that we have given ourselves over the course of the season so far. So one consistent piece of feedback we've gotten is like people like hearing about what books are coming out, but they also want to know whether those books are worth their time in the first place. And Mm -hmm. we've been great on the former and less great on the latter because often we end up talking in our homework section about books we haven't actually finished yet. So This is so true. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I think I was going back through and I think I've actually talked about books I've actually finished like four four times. Yeah. We do a lot of books that we're very excited about or that we're about to get out. But then I don't know about you. Sometimes my progress gets imminently derailed because I have to focus on the book we're talking about that week. Or sometimes I also like to read non-YA stuff. Yeah, I was definitely looking at my 95 books, which is hashtag 95 books on Twitter. You can see what people are reading for people who are aiming for this arbitrary, completely arbitrary goal of 95 books. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can see from mine that all I read is YA and occasionally a comic book for a break. So I've definitely been trying to get back to my litfic reading because I've missed it. I realized when we did our episode on virgin suicides, actually, how much I enjoy the particularly different kind of brain crunch that is offered Mm. by literary fiction. Yeah. That's so funny because that exact same thing happened to me when you mentioned Celeste Ng oh, yeah. on that episode. And I was like, I don't know that I've read her latest book. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing, right? Like everyone who loves books, who talks about books, whether professionally or for fun, knows that there are more books in the world that you want to read than you'll ever possibly read in your lifetime. Oh so gosh, yeah. sometimes we hype up a book and we're really excited about it and we don't get it finished in time to talk about it on the show or at all. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Like I think for the most part, when we talk about books, we're helping them find audiences and Mm -hmm. sometimes that audience isn't us and that's okay. But today we're going to backtrack a little bit and talk about some books that we hyped up on the show and then actually finished. And also Joe has spent time revisiting both Umbrella Academy and sex education. And so we're going to talk a bit more about those two because we only got to talk about them kind of in a micro sense. And now Joe's got a more macro sense of both those series. So that's what we're doing today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So Brenna, do you have a book that you have finished that you talked about that you would like to kick things off with? I do. And I think I'm going to kick off with the book I was most excited about to get a galley copy of because it's still not out yet. And I've actually... <laughs> <laughs> and you are still riding high on your elite status. I am. You know, I really am. And it's not out until October. And I was going to put it in the forecasting episode. But I talked about it so much when I got my hands on my copy of it that retelling you the synopsis is not going to be helpful. So what are you talking about? <laughs> 
<laughs> the book is Dear Sweet Pea by Julie Murphy. Yes. Yes. So if you don't remember, Julie Murphy wrote Dumplin', yes. uh, which we loved the book version of and liked, but we're slightly disappointed by the film version of. Yes. And Dear Sweet Pea is classic Julie Murphy. But what's interesting about it is that I mentioned this before. It's a middle grade book as opposed to a YA book. Mm-hmm. And I was very interested to see how that was going to translate. Yes, because for somebody who loves YA as much as I do, I actually don't really enjoy middle grade fiction for the most part. I think because there's less kissing, probably. (laughs) Which if you've listened to our forecast episode, you'll know is very important to me. Mm -hmm. And you'll also know that I have very little interest in middle grade fiction because that's why I poo-pooed Diary of a Wimpy. (laughs) It's true. But I will say right off the bat that... It's middle grade, but it's going to have a wide appeal. It's definitely going to cross over to YA. I think it may even cross over to adult audiences. Mm -hmm. It's that compelling a story. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. So um, when I read you the synopsis weeks ago, I told you that the book is about Patricia Sweet Pea DeMarco. So Sweet Pea is the nickname that her father gives her. Her parents are divorced, recently divorced, and they're trying to do the divorce quote unquote right. Sweet Pea's mom is a therapist and it's a big deal for her in this small town. She's like the only therapist in this small town and her marriage has just collapsed. So performing the correct way to divorce is really important to her. What her family ends up doing is renting a house with almost an identical floor plan, two doors down for her father to live in. And so Sweet Pea is living this very weird existence. (laughs) It just seems like such a bad idea. Like that is not doing the divorce right. (laughs) No. And it's like basically making it impossible for her to move on. But the house in between the two houses is owned by Flora May. And Flora May is the advice columnist for the town paper. She writes a column called Miss Flora May I. (laughs) I know it's adorable. (laughs) Everything about this book is adorable. Right. She goes away and asks Sweet Pea to house sit, water the plants, and also to pick up the parcels of letters and mail them to her so she can answer the letters while she's away. That's no vacation. No, seriously. But unsurprisingly, Sweet Pea tries her hand at answering a few of the letters and gets herself into mischief in the process. So that's the premise of the book. It's a very adorable premise. The things I liked about this book are that Julie Murphy is getting better and better at writing what I'm going to call effortlessly diverse texts. And what I mean by that Mm. is not that she's not putting effort into it, but that... Seems like it's not an effort. Yeah. So here's a subtlety in the book. Julie Murphy never assumes that the characters are white. So just like she would say like Nathaniel, his mom's from the Caribbean, right? And like, so that gives you like an ethnicity and a background. She does the same thing with the white characters. So she tells you when a character is white, and she also tells you when a character is a person of color. And the effect is that white is not the default, right? Right. Like white is as requiring of description as everything else. So you never find yourself assuming a character is white until proven otherwise, which happens in most books by white people. Yes. This actually brings me back to the conversation that we had with Stephen, so one of our Camlet authors, if you want to go back to the interview with Stephen Berezne, he talked about the process that he had to make sure that people understood the proper gender identities, and he made explicit effort. 
I think it's so fascinating when authors go that extra mile to make Mm -hmm. sure that they're addressing these preconceived notions. It really confronts our assumptions about what's normative and what's not normative when you see it, when you're confronted with it on the page. And I really commend Murphy for doing this, especially at the middle grade level, like Mm -hmm. just normalizing the idea of whiteness not as the default. Fantastic. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, like the protagonists of Murphy's other books, Sweet Pea is Fat, like the protagonists of Murphy's other books, that is not the sum of her story. And indeed, it is not even a plot point in the book. There's a couple of moments, like she's trying to buy a dress for prom and she's struggling with what's available to her. Mm -hmm. But Sweet Pea's comfortable in her skin and not in a way that's badly done inspiration porn, but just in a way that like (laughs) she is fat and also she has curly hair these two things are true and sometimes these two things are annoying for her and sometimes these two things are not and that's just who she is which is really nice to see similarly through the narrative we find out that the reason for the divorce is that sweet pea's dad has come to terms with the fact that he's gay and oh yeah and it's (laughs) like they have it's hmm, it's not like i don't know if you watch schitt's creek i do yeah so dan levy has talked about how like he wanted to make a world free of bigotry and so That's why the characters never have to confront bigotry on the show and that that was really important to him. It's not that. There are characters who are bigoted. There are characters who treat Sweet Pea like crap for being fat. There are characters who treat Sweet Pea's dad like crap for being gay. There are characters who don't understand other people's experiences of the world. These are just things that happen in this world. But the overarching message is that Actually, diverse experiences are the normal experiences. Mm-hmm. And the characters who are bigoted are clearly shown to be in the wrong, but not in the kind of black and white way you might expect from a middle grade novel. Yeah. There's a lot of nuance and cleverness here. And it's just it's just great. I really can't recommend it high enough. So it's not out until October, You're but I recommend cruel. you keep an eye on it. What? You're just cruel. I know. I know. <laughs> But it's really good. Put it on your library holds list now. Get your libraries to order it now. Put it on your Amazon wish list now. Whatever it takes to remember to read it because it's really, really good. It's also going to make a great gift for middle grade readers on your list. Mm -hmm. And I would be shocked if the adaptation is not forthcoming. Oh, yeah. It feels inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Okay. So I'll begin with one that is trying to do something kind of similar to what you're describing and is unfortunately not doing it quite as well. And this was a very high hope on my list. So I had talked a big game about wanting to read Ken's by Rosie. Oh yeah, we talked about it because I was a big fan of When Everything Feels Like Movies. Yes, and so was I. So... Raziel Reed is a Canadian author. He's on the West Coast. He's young. He's very publicly gay. He's kind of like a, a fabulous trendsetter. So the first book, When Everything Feels Like the Movies, is this really, really heartbreakingly difficult read about a boy who is so delusional he wants to be a movie star that he lives his life as though he were living in a movie. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. It's so compelling, so difficult to read. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of emotion. It's got a lot of depth to it. And the writing is really interesting. And I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's challenging in the right ways. 
It's super compelling. And I think when we talked about either it or The Lesser Blessed, we did compare the two. I think that Everything mm. Feels Like the Movies is very much like a white queer Lesser Blessed. Um, it yes. has that yeah. northern setting. It has that kind of oppressive community. It has that sense of abandonment by the adults. It has all of those components, but it's talking about a white queer experience as opposed to an indigenous experience, but mm-hmm. they have very similar tones. So if, if Lesser Blessed was something that you liked, you will like Everything Feels Like Movies. Yeah. So Ken's is his sophomore effort. It's the follow-up after that, and it's a big departure. So this is a parody that's more or less aping the movie's Heathers or Mean Girls using Mattel's Barbies as a kind of template. So this is a world that is completely queer-centric. It's like the power resides with those who are queer, and it's... Well, if you've seen Heathers or Mean Girls, you know exactly what to expect. It's about a clique of identically named, in this case, boys named Ken. And the top one is Ken Hilton. He rules the school. He's got carbon copy clones, Ken Roberts and Ken Carson. And Ken Roberts is the vain, shallow one. And Ken Carson is the kind of muscle jock, dumb one. And what Reed is doing is very much playing on all of these very familiar archetypes in terms of characters, in terms of narrative. And I really thought that it was going to be just savage satire. And unfortunately, what I got was RuPaul Drag Race language and a near identical carbon copy clone of Heather's. He's literally not bringing anything new to the table with this text. Like, it was so disappointing for me. I kept waiting for something innovative or subversive to happen, but the plot is almost beat per beat of Heather's. Oh, I If you feel didn't like... know it, you might be interested in this, but if you're even remotely familiar with Mean Girls or Heather's, you have already consumed this text. I am so sad for you because when you <laughs> talked about that before, I was like, this is the Joeist book to ever Joe. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I think part of the problem, too, is that because it's written in a first-person narrator, so the narrator is, of course, the boy on the outside who gets literally made into. So in this case, the makeover scene is literal cosmetic surgery. All the Kens look identical. They've all had plastic surgery to get face implants, pec implants, thighs, calves, all that stuff. So they look identical to each other. And even as I'm talking about it, I'm thinking about how clever and savage and interesting this should have been. And just the whole time I read it, this character, Tommy, he's not interesting. He's not self-aware. So everything just flies by him. And all of the cultural critiques, you know, like the parents are disaffected. They're only interested in their own social media presence, celebrity, publicity, and so on. It just has this been there, done that feel. I kept waiting for something new, and he never gets there. I'm, I'm just, this is really sad. I know. <laughs> Part of it is that I was so excited for it, and I'm very much guilty of overhyping things. So I thought of how much I loved when everything feels like the movies. The premise sounded so on brand for me. Yeah, it just, it all rang very hollow to me, very surface level. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so um, unfortunately, I'm not going to recommend Ken's, but as always, if you have an interest in the text and you think it sounds like something you may enjoy, obviously you should give it a try. 
or just bypass it and read everything feels like the movies because yeah. that one was genuinely great. Yeah, that would be what I would probably say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for my next pick, I'm going to pick one that we have a shared author here, Joe. so I thought maybe we could talk about her together. Okay. Um, because I actually <laughs> literally this morning read the last page of a book that I talked about uh, might have been... It was around the time that the Prince Awards came out because I think yes. I talked about yeah. Tiffany D. Jackson being nominated mm-hmm. or being awarded one of those major awards from the Library Awards this year. And the book in question is Let Me Hear a Rhyme by Tiffany D. Jackson. And this was great. So it just came out a couple of weeks ago. I was lucky enough to have an advanced copy of it. So I've been dipping in and out of it for a little while. And then finally on the airplane home from visiting my parents, I was able to like really commit to reading it. So the reason I was excited for Let Me Hear a Rhyme by Tiffany D. Jackson is that I loved her first two books. So Allegedly and Monday's Not Coming, which I believe, mm-hmm. Joe, you were yelling at me on Twitter about not uh, that long ago. Yes. So <laughs> yeah, so I read Monday's Not Coming over the break. And if people care to go back and listen, you talked about this on episode 11 when okay. we talked about the kissing booth. So it was actually quite a bit longer than I remembered. Yeah, so you had proposed this as a bit of a mystery novel. Mm-hmm. So Monday's Not Coming is about a girl whose best friend just randomly stops coming to school one day. And mm-hmm. despite her best efforts to track her friend down, she can't get a read on whether she's gone to stay with her aunt or her father. And her mother seems very dodgy and she's not telling her things. And the girl's siblings are saying that she should stay away. But all of the adults in her life tell her, well, you know what? Like, you've got to go on with your life. You've just got to stop thinking about this. You've got to focus on dance class, focus on getting into the right high school school and she just can't let the disappearance of her friend go so you sold this to me as a really great mystery with a diverse cast so it's a it's a young black girl and her friend who's missing and I really really enjoyed this book it's a very hard read and then the ending made me yell at you and threaten to publicly end this podcast because I was so mad not because it's not good just to clarify because a lot of people were like whoa what's going on between the two of you This was the equivalent of a book punching me in the gut and just leaving me for dead on the side of the road it destroyed me and I was so mad at you because I didn't feel like you had properly warned me (laughs) that it was going to have that kind of effect it's just so well written and you're so invested in this investigation and honestly it's hard too because the whole book I just felt like all the parents and the adults were gaslighting this girl Mm -hmm. and it's hard when you're in there with this character And feeling like you're not getting the answers and you just want to give her a hug and shake some sense into them. And of course, the truth, the realization of what's actually happening is something completely different. In my defense, (laughs) I think it would have been hard to prep you for that without spoiling the experience of Mm -hmm. it. So my favorite thing about Tiffany D. Jackson as a writer are those twists. She writes these amazing... Sometimes it's an unreliable narrator, like in the first book, allegedly, it's very much an unreliable narrator. You come to believe her version of the experience, and then she rips the rug out from under you with a massive, devastating twist. Mm -hmm. And Monday's Not Coming, very similar. 
except that allegedly is not really a mystery because you think you know what's happened because you believe the protagonist. And then you realize that maybe you shouldn't. Monday's Not Coming is much more sort of like going to get to the bottom of this and then you get another twist that rips the rug out from under you. So So what's the new one like? Yeah, Let Me Hear a Rhyme is, um, hmm, it's really good. Mm-hmm. And if I hadn't read Allegedly and Monday's Not Coming, and if I hadn't come to a Tiffany D. Jackson novel with a certain expectation uh, of What you twist, would expect in mm-hmm, the level, right? Then I think that I would, I would five-star this novel up and down. And it is really interesting. So a couple of things that I really like about it, I mentioned this when I gave the synopsis, I guess, way back in episode 11. <laughs> it's about three teens in Brooklyn. Their friend gets murdered, and they decide that they're going to take all these demo tapes that they find of his and they're going to make him a rap star posthumously. Okay. There's a lot of fun. It's set in the 90s. It's kind of like a hip-hop weekend at Bernie's a lot of the time. Yes, yeah. If you are into 90s culture, if you're into hip-hop culture, I mean, if you're our age, Joe, this book is great because the characters are all born in 82, 83. So their teen experience aligns with the pop culture of our teen experience because it's set in the 90s. So for all of those reasons, I really enjoyed it. I thought the world building was incredibly effective. I thought the characters were really whole and rounded. But I kept holding my breath for the twist that would unravel me. Right. And it's just not that kind of book. (laughs) So I was waiting and waiting. And I felt like she was setting me up for a twist Mm, that never came. But in fairness, as I think back to the book, I was really looking for those clues of a twist because I'm used to her other books. Right. It's kind of like if you went to see an M. Night Shyamalan film and then he didn't give you a twist. You're like, but I've been waiting the whole movie for it. Yeah, exactly. And I'm waiting to see if the wind did it. (laughs) I hated that movie so much. That's a terrible movie, yeah. (laughs) The book is really quite moving. The relationship between the protagonists is really well articulated. The characters are full, interesting. One of my favorite things is that these are three kids who are read as kind of street hoodlums by the society around them, but like one of them is going to go to a private school on a sports scholarship, and one of them is like super into comic books, like makes a Thor reference every five seconds. So there's a complexity and a nuance about who these teens are that I think is really welcome and I think my problems with the book such as they are are entirely like me bringing too much expectation to it so I really strongly recommend let me hear a rhyme I think allegedly and Monday's not coming are better examples of what Tiffany D. Jackson is capable of okay interesting Mm mm-hmm and I'm sorry for gutting you (laughs) I mean I appreciated it it was a roller coaster ride Oh, I did want to mention something that didn't come up in the forecast that is Tiffany D. Jackson related. Mm -hmm. There's an anthology coming out in September where 13 YA writers reimagine Edgar Allan Poe's most famous short stories. Oh, wow. Okay. And Tiffany D. Jackson has been tasked with the rewrite of The Cask of Amontillado in that collection. Okay. So I think it's going to be... Mm-hmm. she's the perfect writer it's to do that story right in her wheelhouse so. it's totally in her wheelhouse and the collection itself just sounds great so it's called his hideous heart and if you like poe and you like ya i mean they made this book for you so you should probably buy it um and it's out in september nice okay 
So maybe if we can stick with minor disappointments and then I can end on one of two highs. Cool. We had talked a while back, I think it was around the time that we did Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda. We, at that point, had done Becky Albertalli as well as... Uh, Angie Thomas. Yeah, so we had done Angie Thomas and we had done Becky Albertalli and I'd mentioned to you that I wanted to check out Adam Silvera's book because they're kind of a trilogy of friends and they seem to gravitate around each other. So, And I told you that I had been trying and failing to finish his books (laughs) for some time and I was hoping you would have better luck. Yeah, so unfortunately I didn't. I gave a go at They Both Die at the end This, I think, is the big book for him. So even though he's published a couple of other ones, this is the one that I get the impression is most likely to be adapted or people probably have heard of. So it's about two boys from different sides of the track. They both get notified that they are going to die by the end of the day. So this is set in a mildly dystopian future world where there is a service that can predict that people are going to die and then they are notified so that they can live their final day in whatever way they choose. Of course, they're just armed with the knowledge that anything that they do might be the cause of their own demise. Hmm. And if that premise sounds interesting to you, I would say this may not necessarily be the book for you. (laughs) If only because the book takes that as its starting point, but it's distinctly uninterested in actually exploring how that service came to be, what are the ramifications, how long it's been going on for, what it does. It's very much interested in telling intimate stories, particularly about these two boys and then the people that they come in contact with over the course of the day. They don't know each other. They get matched together by a separate app. It's called Final Friend. So you can get a friend for your final day. Sometimes those are people who are also doomed to die, but more often than not, it's just people who want to be there for someone on their final day. So they go off and they have a series of adventures. And I think part of it was that I was really hoping it was going to be like Nicanora's Infinite Playlist, mm-hmm. where people have a day where they're running around town and they're learning about each other and they're getting into petty squabbles and they're falling in love. And all of that kind of stuff does happen. But there was just something about Silvera's writing that didn't capture me. He would mm-hmm. frequently cut away to give an individual chapter or a couple of pages to a random person that they had interacted with who would contribute to the way that these two boys die. Because the title is predictive. They both Mm -hmm. die by the end of the book. There's no getting around it. So my experience with this novel was very similar to what you're describing, which is that I was interested in the premise. I wanted the world building. I wanted to understand the context. Mm -hmm. And there's none of that. There's none of it. And it's weird to set up what is ultimately, I mean, I shouldn't say ultimately because I don't finish the book, but what came across to me as like pretty conventional, like becoming friends in weird circumstances kind of YA story without ever giving me any more about the weird circumstances, which is the part of the book that's fascinating. Yes, 100%. It cheesed me off a lot, and I did not finish it. It really did. And I think the problem, too, is that if the characters were great, you'd be willing to forgive that. But I didn't like either of the two protagonists. Because one, he's meant to be that lovable scamp kind of hood guy, but he's not. That's not actually who he is. But the whole Mm -hmm. book is like him almost trying to convince himself otherwise. Mm Because it opens with him beating the crap out of somebody. And then that is one of the things that ends up contributing to their day and the way that it has to go. 
as he has to run away to avoid being arrested by the police and spending his final day in jail. And he's just frustrating because Silvera can't decide whether he wants this person to be a bit more down on their luck, like he's in the foster system, but he's got friends who help him get through it. It feels like he should be gritty, but he's not. He's just kind of bland bad boy in a way. Right. And then the other character is like a hermit who's afraid to leave his apartment and he's never he's never truly lived. So he lives with his single father. His father is in the hospital in a coma and he's just very terrified of absolutely everything. So 90% of the book is trying to convince this character to do anything at all and it's just so frustrating. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yes, <laughs> this was exactly my experience. This might be a good place to give a call out to the audience because Adam Silvera has tons of fans. So maybe this is the wrong book into his work. Maybe someone can give us some context about what they love about Adam Silvera's mm-hmm. work. You can find us on hashtag HKHSPod on the Twitter. And I think we'd both like to know if there's a better way into his books than what we've been trying. Yeah. Yeah, I really struggled. Like I ended up finishing it. And it's not that I hated it, but I found myself getting frustrated. I kept feeling like I was being promised something and then I wasn't being given that. And I, again, I don't know if it was me or if it's just, yeah, maybe it's not the right book. I had a very strong sensibility when I read that book that Sulfara didn't know what the most interesting part of that story was. Mm, And it was really similar to the way I felt with some of the adaptations when the mark has been missed. And it's like, you didn't understand what you had. Mm -hmm. You're focusing on the wrong things. Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of evidence in They Both Die at the End that he's a gifted writer. I wonder if part of the problem is that he's chosen a premise that demands a bit of world building that he doesn't give you. And so whether it's because he doesn't care about the world building or it's not his strength or whatever... For me, that was an insurmountable disjuncture between what I wanted from the text and what the text was able to give me. Yeah. Yep. A hundred percent. Okay. Okay. I'm going to finish it off with a book that I told you twice that I was reading. And then (laughs) I never did. Well, my hold kept expiring on it. And not because I wasn't totally into the book, but just because like my life is crazy. Um, Getting through like the books we're reading for the podcast and whatever I need to read or write for work is like enough many weeks so mm-hmm. i i missed finishing this twice but it's a testament to the poet x by uh, elizabeth yes. acevedo that i kept getting it back out of the library because i really did want to finish it so this is the book that i told you about several weeks ago that is entirely written in slam poetry yes So it's a book about a young girl in Harlem discovering slam poetry as a way to cope with a whole bunch of things in her life. Her mom is really oppressively Catholic in the way she's raising particularly her daughter, Poet X, our protagonist. I looked up how to pronounce her name because I definitely screwed it up in the first iteration of this conversation. So it's (laughs) Siomara. Okay. Protagonist Siomara, she's one of a twin. She has a twin brother, and her brother has a lot more freedom than she does. Um, Her parents question her brother a lot less. Her parents, and particularly her mother, are really obsessed with Siomara's sexuality, like this idea that she's going to be flagrantly feminine as she comes into her body and as she goes through puberty and all this stuff. And so she feels really quite oppressed at home when she pushes her mother's temper too far. Her mother is definitely abusive physically, verbally. So Siomara is dealing with a lot. She's good at and she likes school, 
but she's struggling with a lot of questions about her Catholic faith as she approaches her confirmation. So the added complication for Siomara is that she is, for the first time in her life, interested in a boy. And her mom is super not into that. And everything culminates when she gets caught with the boy. What she discovers is... It sounds really cheesy, but herself (laughs) through poetry, through trying to express what she's experiencing through poetry. And what she also discovers is that for her parents and especially her mother, the honesty with which she approaches her poetry feels like a betrayal, right? Her mother sees it as her sort of like airing the family's dirty laundry in public. And they kind of come to a head where they have to make sense of each other. I don't want to give away more than that because I think the story itself is really quite compelling. Mm -hmm. And the main reason why I hope people will pick this up is because the whole thing's written in slam poetry. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we talk so much about the tropes of YA and the need to see more innovation, both in terms of storytelling and voices, but also in terms of form. Mm -hmm. So Jacqueline Woodson is also writing in poetry, often in verse. But here we have quite a masterful depiction of slam poetry like on the page like you could read the whole book aloud wow you you could totally read the whole book aloud apparently the audiobook is amazing and i sort of regret that i didn't read it in that format yeah that would have been amazing yeah so especially if you're a slam poetry fan i hear picking up the audiobook is definitely the way to go with this one but I just think people should get it and support formally innovative texts like this. It's a diverse own stories narrative. It's emotional. It's real visceral. Because it's written in poetry, the imagery is some of the best that I've read in YA. Mm. So yeah, I highly recommend it. The Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo. She also has a second book, which I just started on the plane. Um, I was hoping I would finish it in time to talk about it alongside. And I think I may have talked about it because I had just gotten the advanced reading copy when I was trying to finish The Poet X. It's called With the Fire on High. Yes, you have talked about it. Yeah, and that's the one where the passion that the protagonist is discovering in herself is a passion for cooking yes yeah yeah Yeah, so i'm really into this idea of women of color leading young women of color leading these ya books that are really about passion and in both cases there are love stories but in both cases the love story is incidental to the protagonist discovering her gifts Mm. and uh, that always makes me super happy especially with young women protagonists yeah That uh, sounds a little bit like one of the honorable mentions that I frame in the YA forecast episode, Slay, about the girl who's a computer video game designer. Yes, definitely. More stories. Just more stories. Different types of stories. stories. (laughs) More different stories. We want to hear more different stories. Yeah. (laughs) So I know that we're running a little bit long, but I just wanted to give a quick couple of shout outs to the final books that I managed to read in our... I mean, it's hilarious because to everybody else, it's just been a week, but to us, it's been... (laughs) About five. (laughs) So I did have a chance to read a couple of titles that I mentioned a long while back, I think actually in the previous YA forecast or the holiday episode. So I had the opportunity to read The Wicked Deep by Shay Earnshaw, which is about the three witches who every spring they come back and they each kill a boy in the small town. And the girl who discovers that she herself is a witch, but she has to keep it secret. But in doing so, she may lose the boy that she has fallen in love with. Yes, that sounded amazing, was it? It's good. 
it starts off really strong and I like the voice. It's really, really readable. Like I just burned through it, but I, I found it did run out of steam. It kind of loses its sense of pacing about two thirds of the way through. And I'm not going to say any more than that because I think I would still recommend it to people who are interested, but I didn't love where it ended up going, but Mm. I would 100% read anything else that she writes because I think she's got a good handle on executing a premise that is compelling and the characters were all interesting. It's just in this case, it didn't quite seem to know how to resolve itself. Can I ask a quick question about it? Mm -hmm. How long was it? Uh, It was about, I think, mid 300s. See, I think that we... It's a little bit long. Yeah, I really think that if I could change the world in one completely frivolous way, (laughs) it would be to encourage YA editors editors in particular to just take a stronger hand with these books, particularly debut books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually found a little bit of the same with Monday's Not Coming, even Mm -hmm. though I, I like that one quite a bit more. It did get to the point where I was kind of ready for the resolution. And I don't know that that's where you want to leave your audience, even if you've got a slam dunk ending. Yeah, I um, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I do. I think there, yeah, yeah. I won't say anymore, yeah. but I think you're right. There's one other one, so I just finished it. It's The Afterlife of Holly Chase, and I mentioned this in our Christmas episode way back in the day. <laughs> you sure did. Yeah, so this is the story of a rich, entitled, privileged girl who lives in Los Angeles who... Sure, those are Brenna's favorite kind. You betcha, but she, <laughs> she's pretty quickly dropped down a couple notches when she is visited by the three ghosts of Christmas, and she decides she doesn't want to listen to them because she thinks it's a dream and then she dies in a yoga accident (laughs) so this all happens within about the first two to three pages and the rest of the book is spent on her purgatory assignment where she has to go and work for the company that controls those ghosts so it's a company called project scrooge that's based out of new york and every year they select a new scrooge that they work on this is interesting actually in the context of they both die at the end because the premise is inherently founded on this magical supernatural ability to open doors into the scrooge's bedroom to access their memories while they dream to access a time tunnel into a alternate universe so that they can watch the memories play out on Christmas Eve to try to convince the Scrooge to change their tune. And yet, you don't really find out how that actually works. They just kind of magical wish it away. But you get enough of a sense of how the company works that that doesn't bother you. So the book picks up with Holly five years after she's been playing the Ghost of Christmas Past. And she's basically living this terrible existence where she just goes to work. She's not dead but she's also not alive so she's also given minimal amounts of money so she can't really just enjoy her undead status even though she reboots back to the way she was the day that she died every single day so she can't get injured she can't die again but she's also then held off on having any kind of meaningful relationship she doesn't have friends she doesn't date she doesn't do anything for fun Mm. and that all changes when the new scrooge for the year is a 17 year old attractive rich boy and Holly finds herself attracted to him and she decides that she 
should meet him in person, which is explicitly against the rules. And they end up dating. And it, of course, causes all kinds of complications because what if she gets recognized? He's being monitored by this group of people at Project Scrooge the whole time. So she's leading this double life, but she's also finally making a connection. She's coming out of her shell. She's realizing that she was a bit of a haughty bitch back when she was (laughs) alive. You can kind of see where it's all headed. Yeah. And part of the strength of the book is that Holly never becomes fully redeemed. She's always still got a bit of a sarcastic, entitled sense about her for most of the book, even though you can see her starting to warm up to people. She's an inherently relatable character, even if she's not always sympathetic. The romance that she has with the new Scrooge, Ethan, is kind of adorable. It's a nice Christmas New York book in that regard. But one of the things I appreciated the most is that it does have a couple of tricks up its sleeve. So even though you think you know exactly what's happening, and in several cases, you actually do. I'll confess, the end of the book kind of got me, and I may have even shed a Christmas tear or two. Oh. Yeah. So that's The Afterlife of Holly Chase. Cool. Yeah. Okay, well, I am out because I've been, <laughs> I've been remiss. Joe was hoping that we would both rewatch <laughs> or finish watching The Umbrella Academy and Sex Education, and I failed to do either. Frankly, I wanted to get to Sex Education. Mm-hmm. I really, like, and I will still finish it. Umbrella Academy, I don't know, meh. But yeah. uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was interested when you said that you would consider watching the rest of Umbrella Academy, because even I struggled to finish all the remaining episodes. Like a lot of Netflix shows, it does pick up towards the end as it's barreling towards its conclusion. So this is 10 episodes long, but the episodes are a heavy-handed somewhere between 46 and 55 minutes each. No, it's too much. Yeah, and it feels like it. That's the biggest issue that I had with the show. So this is about a group of siblings who each have superpowers except for the one who does not. And they're not actual siblings. They were all miraculously, immaculately conceived and then gathered by an eccentric millionaire who turned them into a team of superheroes as children. And then they grow up to become dysfunctional adults and they come back together after he dies to head off the apocalypse, which is coming in five days. And there's a couple of really big problems with the show. So in addition to the really lengthy runtimes, which just often tend to drag the episodes down, Mm. there's a couple of inspired performances by a pair of assassins named Hazel and Cha-Cha. One of them is played by Mary J. Blige. The other is played by Cameron someone, the guy from Mindhunter. Okay. They're both really good, but they're technically from the second graphic novel, whereas most of the first season is from the first. And at a certain point, Hazel and Cha-Cha needed to be sent back to the future so that they could come back at a later date. Mm-hmm. And they are not sent away. They persist throughout the remainder of the season, even when the plot clearly should not be focusing on them, and it's a distraction. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I like these two actors, but this subplot is not something that I care to focus on, particularly as you're meant to be ramping up for the end of the world. So that is frustrating. And then, of course, you've got these dysfunctional adults who refuse to work together, who refuse to move towards some kind of resolution to prevent everyone on Earth dying so that they can 
have drug-induced detours so they can go to raves so they can get laid. So it's frustrating when the episodes are long, when there's subplots that feel like they should have been edited or cut out, Mm -hmm. and then you've got characters who are not focused. And that that is part of it. You know, we talked about that in the episode on the Umbrella Academy is that the strength is meant to be like, uh, like they're just really not good at what they're doing. <laughs> but that plays very differently when it's six issues of a graphic novel compared to 10 hours of television. I mean, we've talked about this before, but it's a problem that is endemic to Netflix oh and the structure gosh, that yes. it's using for Netflix originals. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm struck by this because, so part of the reason that I haven't done any of this watching is because I literally did not watch a single thing the entire three and a half weeks I was out of town. Wow. Not a single thing. And that's not like, look at me being screen free. That's like, I got to the end of the day and I fell asleep. Um, So the only thing that I have made time for watching since I got home is Chernobyl. Ooh, wow. That's a bold choice. (laughs) I know, right? But, you know, I mean, you know who I'm married to. um, And I wanted to watch it, and he's going to watch it right away. So we've been watching it the last two evenings. We've watched the first three episodes, I guess. And I was struck by, and I mean, I'm not going to say everything HBO does is perfect. I frankly believe that most of Game of Thrones was a complete dog's breakfast. (laughs) I I mean, I only watched the first four seasons. but Oh, okay. You don't know the half of it then. (laughs) But I'm watching Chernobyl, and I'm really struck by how incredibly tight those 45 50 minute episodes are Mm -hmm. and how often you are left wanting more and i haven't watched listeners know i have a toddler but i also have a full-time job and no childcare. so like i don't watch anything that isn't yeah you're not going to watch something that's not a good use of your time i can't and i have watched so many netflix things i mean for mostly for this project recently that i had actually forgotten what a pleasurable experience it is to want more of something oh man (laughs) netflix never leaves anything on the table and it's to its detriment i think yeah And it it was funny because I was thinking back to Umbrella Academy while I was watching Chernobyl. Obviously, it's not the same kind of storytelling by any stretch of the imagination. But just that desire when you finish the episode and you're like, oh, but Mm -hmm. versus finishing the episode and being like, ugh, do I have to watch another one? (laughs) It's like, even though I know it's only an hour, do I have that hour? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I've been staying up too late to just watch another 15 minutes of Chernobyl because I want to know what happens next. And I really think that Netflix needs to, especially as Disney Plus is about to launch, especially as they're about to get true competition for the first time in terms of original streaming content as Hulu ups its game. I really think Netflix needs to rethink the way it approaches storytelling because people are tired. And when it's the only game in town, the bloat is one thing. But they're about to get their lunch eaten on original content if they they don't address this issue. Yeah, because if they think that they can beat Disney in terms of throwing money at the problem, they've got another (laughs) thing coming. Seriously, and I'm looking at Disney Plus. I mean, obviously, they'll hike the price eventually. But right now, Disney Plus is going to be, what, $6.99? I'm already, like, I want to see that Simon series they're making based on Simon and the Hobosavies agenda. Like, they've they've already got properties that I'm excited about. Mm -hmm. Plus, they're going to have the entire back catalog of, like, every blockbuster ever made. Every Marvel movie, every animated film. Yep. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, but... There's so much potential in what Netflix creates. And I'm thinking about things like series that I have passionately loved, like Orange is the New Black. The first season of that is one of my favorite seasons of television. Mm. I know it's not YA, but just talking about Netflix originals. Yeah. And I never, I have not yet finished and probably never will the last season. Oh my it's gosh, like, it's awful. Yeah. They just don't know how to no. 
wrap up a story, which is why let's segue into a much better use of everyone's time, which is sex education. <laughs> sure. I did want to give two props oh, to Umbrella Academy, though. I did want to say, for as much as I complained about them just like treading water for a bunch of episodes, I mm-hmm. did like that they gave Vanya's transformation into the white violin sort of proper escalation. Like she didn't just turn into a crazy supervillain in one episode. So Good. in that way, it was handled well. And the first season, so it's been renewed for a second season, the first season ends with a fairly dramatic cliffhanger. And I will say it is kind of enough to get me to want to come back. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah, so props to them on going out with a big old bang. We should also let listeners know that the third volume did drop in the spring. Oh, okay. Hmm. Of the comic itself. So if you want to read the third volume, that is out and available as well. Yeah. As per your request to transition over. (laughs) Sex education. Much easier to recommend to our listeners, to friends, to old people that you meet on the street or you're talking to in line at the grocery store because it is honestly super charming. Okay. Yeah. Tell me what you like about it. So I remember when we talked about this way back in the day. So this came back in January. So it's now been about five months. It did take me a while to get through it just because the episodes, they're actually even longer than Umbrella Academy, if you can imagine. They're about 55 to 58 minutes each. The difference is is that it doesn't feel that way. Yes. And I remember that just from the first two that we watched. Mm -hmm. I was stressed out by how long they were because I just never have time. But I enjoyed the content and it felt like a well-used hour, Mm -hmm. not an hour that's been stretched to be an hour. Yeah, or an hour that you want back. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so the premise of sex education is... focuses on Otis, who is a high school boy in the UK. He has a divorced mother who is a struggling sex therapist, and he has taken up a bunch of her techniques, and he partners with the rebellious rough girl at school, Maeve, to begin offering therapy to (laughs) disaffected teenagers who are having sexual problems. So, That's a great premise to start from. The series recognizes that it's not tangible to continue just using that. So even though each episode will kind of have a particular case that Otis and Maeve are working on, it really goes beyond that. So you get to learn a great deal more about Eric, Otis's best friend who is gay. And I had some deep reservations about the way that he was being handled when we were just talking about those first two episodes because he... He seemed transparently cliche and stereotypical because he liked to dress up, he liked to wear makeup, he was relatively flamboyant. They give him a really nice arc that does go to a lot of familiar places, but the actor is highly compelling, and even though it is something that you've seen before, it's handled with a lot of grace, and the actor sells it well. One of the other things I like about the show is that it's not afraid to shake up things and have characters that you might not expect to interact. So Maeve ends up, in the first couple of episodes, she's having casual sex with the star athlete who is on the swim team. He has two moms, one who pressures him a great deal too much, and he's just looking to not lash out, but he wants to... be on a less regimented schedule and just have some fun and that's what he does with me but of course i think even in the first two episodes that you would have seen we discover that she's pregnant with his child i think just at the end of the second episode right yeah so the third episode actually centers around her and otis's budding relationship and she ends up asking him to accompany her so that she can get an abortion and this for me was when the show really nailed it like i was 
uncertain or even a little bit ambivalent in those first two episodes. I saw the promise, but I really just was interested in Gillian Anderson. <laughs> mm-hmm. The third episode is probably one of the best depictions of abortion that I've ever seen of any television or movie. Like, it's that good. This is really important. <laughs> like, I obviously haven't watched it yet, but just I want to talk for like two minutes about yep. the context here. And we have talked about it on the show before, the lack of discussion of abortion in YA, particularly YA that is accessible in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about this in our very first episode on the perks of being a wallflower. Oh, yeah, that's right, because there's an abortion in the book and it's excised from the movie, right? Mm-hmm. This is something that we see a lot of, particularly in screen depictions of YA, but even a lot of books shy away from it. And one of the things I mentioned in that first episode that has always stuck with me is the way abortion is dealt with in Juno, Yes, which is a film that is otherwise trying to be sort of frank and unblinking about what teen pregnancy looks like. Mm -hmm. And yet the discussion of abortion is reduced literally to the line, abortion shmushmorshman. And that is it. Yeah. Um, and to me, that is so just perfectly emblematic of how abortion functions as a discursive space in American culture in particular. Mm-hmm. The other very famous example is Degrassi, which has dealt very openly with abortion since the 80s. But those episodes were all basically censored in the U.S. Of course. The abortion scenes were never aired and the follow-up discussion, like the baby just disappears mm-hmm. in <laughs> In, in sure. the versions that were aired in PBS and even on The End, back when that was a thing. I believe the first episode of Degrassi that depicted an abortion didn't screen in the U.S. until the early 2000s. Jeez. So it's really important that sex education addresses this, yeah. that it addresses it unflinchingly, that it doesn't become... I mean, typically when we do get to see an abortion, which I I recognize is very strange language to use, but typically it has to be framed around this notion of regret. Um, Where we do see abortions in YA, it becomes sort of the turning point in the the female character's life, after which she is never the same. Mm -hmm. She's played with regret, blah, 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 blah. So the more diversity of abortion experiences that we can see in media the more we have cultural language to talk about it and i was thrilled so we joe put up some notes about what he was going to talk about today and i was like just delighted to see that sex education deals with abortion in a rational nuanced complex kind of way that adds to the conversation rather than detracting from it. And it was actually, I mean, when you said that, I was like, okay, well, this just moved up my cue. Like, I'm going to finish watching this before I finish Good Trouble or whatever it else is that I'm watching one episode a month of. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult for Maeve. It's challenging. It's emotional. It's all the things that you would expect from the kind of very special episode. But the moral is not that she made a bad choice or she's a bad person. It really, the story that they want to tell is that it's a, a really terrible thing to have to go through and you need someone there who can help you to get through it and her story is offset by an experience that she has while she's at this clinic of a woman who may be suffering from some mental illness she's she's very outspoken she wants to engage everybody who's in the waiting area she ends up next to Maeve during their procedure like you're you're very off put by her because she's so aggressively chatty and in your face and all this stuff and you just think like oh jesus like shh, this woman needs to be quiet and over the course of the episode you discover like this is a mature woman she's got to be in her late 30s or maybe early 40s like she's on the cusp of not being able to 
have children or have to go through this procedure anymore. But you discover that this is not her first abortion and she actually already has a child, an adult child, because that's who comes to pick her up at the end of the episode. And yes, I'm spoiling that, if only because that doesn't matter, like the episode can still be completely enjoyed, but it reframes the abortion discussion so that it's giving you two different perspectives, one from a teenager, but also one from a woman who just literally cannot and sh- probably should not be having a child. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry to get political, but this is the world that we now live in as between the date that the show dropped back in January and where we are now in June of 2019, we have literally seen the abortion debate in the United States go from not open access, but relatively accessible Mm -hmm. to now literally punishing women for having reproductive organs. The debate has been reframed around fetus heart rates, and it has no concern for the dangers that women will be put in. The casual dismissal of women and women's bodies and women's rights and their agency is completely appalling. And we as Canadians are also pretending like this can't possibly happen here because we are not the U.S. and we're better than them. And it's a very frightening time that I think we all need to be very aware of and we need to be staunch advocates and allies Mm -hmm. because this is a debate that I think a lot of us thought we had closed the door on back in the 70s and it is unfortunately alive and kicking in 2019. I mean, the goal of all of these draconian new laws is to force someone's hand to take it to the Supreme Court, at which point Roe v. Wade will be in a position to be overturned. Like, if I have to read one more white dude columnist explaining how this isn't really that big of a deal and it's all fear-mongering, I'm going to scream. (laughs) Thank you for sharing your lack of bodily concern for other people. Yeah, I really think that media for young people has a responsibility to change the discourse around this. And it delights me to no end that sex education is making that effort, following in the footsteps of, as I say, the kinds of things we were seeing Degrassi doing as early as the 80s. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite scenes from Degrassi, like way back in the day, is a conversation between Spike, who famously has a baby in high school, and a very anti-abortion character who says like, well, how can you believe that girl had an abortion? Like she killed a little baby. And Spike, who has been through childbirth, (laughs) says like, keeping the baby was the right decision for me. It's not the right decision for everyone. Like people have, are you going to edit my toddler's giggles out of this segment? (laughs) Probably not. It feels very wrong. For those of you who are tuning in, my toddler woke up mid episode. And so he's currently watching TV and eating a cookie while we finish this because I'm mother of the year. Anywho, but this notion of bodily autonomy seems to have been lost somewhere in the conversation. And it's all and has only ever been about control because the thing we need to always remember is that the wealthy will always have access to the services that they need. Yep. You're not going to see a lot of privileged white ladies dying over any kind of laws, but... I think we all know who's going to suffer. It's going to be the poor, the marginalized, the Mm -hmm. already at risk and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Yep. I applaud sex education for addressing it. And I applaud Netflix for airing it in North America. And I hope we can see more US-based media really friggin' grow up about the way it discusses reproductive justice. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, not the happy 
happiest of ways to draw this episode to a conclusion, but yeah, major props to sex education for handling this and many other subjects with Mm -hmm. sensitivity, with wit, with grace, with compelling and charming, just effortlessly charming characters. The episodes are long, but they honestly, it felt like a joy. And when we got to the end of the eighth episode, it was like, oh, is that all? Do we have, we have to wait for more? That's a shame. Because you really That's do. Nice. You want more of these people. So thankfully it has also been renewed for a second season. So we should be seeing more of it and the Umbrella Academy sometime in 2020, I imagine. Sounds great. Yeah. All right. So uh, that is our wrap up of our homework. If you want to weigh in on any of these texts or suggest some different homework for us, we're all ears. Mm-hmm. You can find us on the social medias by using the hashtag HKHSPod on Twitter. That gets both of us and we're always game for conversation. Joe, where can they find you? I am at Beast on my remote. That's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And you can email us. Joe, I'm going to try to do the email address. You ready? Yes. You can email us with longer thoughts at hkhspod at gmail.com. Look at you go. I know. I'm growing as a person. (laughs) (laughs) And if you didn't listen to our forecast episode this week, then you won't know that next week we're looking at Everything, Everything by Nicola Yoon. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, very exciting. So we've got a couple more weeks of regular airplane, and then we're going to be going on a sabbatical. So one of the other things we probably should have mentioned is we are going to be looking at updating the YA bingo card. So if you are listening to episodes and you want to give us some ideas about new slots that we should be adding, please feel free to give us a ring on either the Twitter or the Gmail account with your suggestions on what you would like to see moving forward yeah definitely if you want us to be looking out for different tropes tell us we want to know yeah cool so until next time joe i guess i'll be seeing you on the page and i will see you on the screen